just in case you're not um, entirely familiar with the book of Habakkuk, um, essentially Habakkuk was uh, living in the land of Judah um, during particularly dark days, challenging times. Um, and he cries out to the Lord in chapter 1 at the start of the book and essentially says, God, what are you going to do about all this wickedness and all your evil? And the Lord replies and says, um, uh, I have a plan, don't worry. I'm going to raise up your enemy, the Babylonians, who are going to come and wipe out uh, your land, Judah, um, because of all the wickedness in the country. And this was presumably not the answer Habakkuk was expecting or wanted. Uh, and so at the end of chapter 1, he uh, replies to the Lord and says, Why? Uh, why are you going to sort it out that way? Are you sure that's the best idea, essentially? Uh, and then we pick up the story at the beginning of chapter 2, where the Lord is replying to Habakkuk. And uh, we're going to read verses 2 to 20, which is the Lord's reply, and it contains five woes of the Lord. And um, I'll particularly point out the third one, which is what uh, the main verses that Andy's going to be speaking to us on. And they are verses 12 to 14. That's the third woe. But I'll start from verse 2. Then the Lord replied, Write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets so that a herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. See, the enemy is puffed up. His desires are not upright, but the righteous person will live by his faithfulness. Indeed, wine betrays him. He is arrogant and never at rest. Because he is as greedy as the grave and like death is never satisfied, he gathers to himself all the nations and takes captive all the peoples. Will not all of them taunt him with ridicule and scorn, saying, Woe to him who piles up stolen goods and makes himself wealthy by extortion. How long must this go on? Will not your creditors suddenly arise? Will they not wake up and make you tremble? Then you will become their prey. Because you have plundered many nations, the peoples who are left will plunder you. For you have shed human blood, you have destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. Woe to him who builds his house by unjust gain, setting his nest on high to escape the clutches of ruin. You have plotted the ruin of many peoples, shaming your own house and forfeiting your life. The stones of the wall will cry out and the beams of the woodwork will echo it. Third woe. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and establishes a town by injustice. Has not the Lord Almighty determined that the people's labor is only fuel for the fire, that the nations exhaust themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbors, pouring it from the wineskins till they are drunk, so that he can gaze on their naked bodies. You will be filled with shame instead of glory. Now it is your turn. Drink and let your nakedness be exposed. The cup of the Lord's right hand is coming around to you, and disgrace will cover your glory. The violence you have done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, and your destruction of animals will terrify you. 
for you have shed human blood. You have destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. Of what value is an idol carved by a craftsman or an image that teaches lies? For the one who makes it trusts in his own creation. He makes idols that cannot speak. Woe to him who says to wood, come to life, or to lifeless stone, wake up. Can it give guidance? It's covered with gold and silver. There is no breath in it. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. The goal that's ahead often makes demands on the actions that you take. That might sound slightly strange in our our rather fluffy world that produces slogans like, it's all about the journey. But you know, if you ever worked for a a high-performing company or, or just know something about how they operate, you'll know that for them, it's all about the goal. Everything that they do is driven by the goal they have in view. One of the leaders best known for this kind of path goal theory is the late Apple boss, Steve Jobs. Remember those unveiling ceremonies when when Jobs would stand before his adoring crowds and he'd hold up his latest invention, perhaps the iPad mini or whatever it was back then, and the crowds would whoop and cheer to their heart's content as they faced this adoring iPad mini being paraded to them. You know, that end product was never Jobs just getting lucky, as it were. It was only achieved through a single-minded pursuit of the goal. Jobs had set his employees the goal of producing the iPad mini. And everything that his employees then did would be viewed through the lens of that goal. Whether it's the production of particular components, or designing of apps, or market research... Anything that didn't serve the goal was frankly superfluous. The goal that's set necessitates the actions of employees. And here in this passage before us, in verses 12 to 14, we see a similar kind of logic at work. You see, if I said to you this evening, well, what's God's goal? What's his goal for the world? I wonder how you would answer Perhaps you would talk of his goal to to fix the problems in the world, to end poverty and injustice and war. Or perhaps you would talk about about the gospel and and focus on the goal to rescue people and to bring them to heaven. Well, those are good and noble things, of course. But dare I say it this evening that God's goal is even greater than that. And we find it revealed to us here in Habakkuk chapter 2, in what's perhaps a rather dusty corner of our Bibles. To bring you back up to speed very briefly, as James was so helpfully telling us, Habakkuk lived in dark days in Judah, about 700 years before Christ. And every evening, as it were, you could sort of imagine Habakkuk getting on the tube in Jerusalem as he was going home from work, reading his Jerusalem evening standard. And he was utterly grieved by what he read. Wickedness abounded through the land. And so Habakkuk cries out to the Lord, Lord, why don't you do something? And the Lord replied, but I am. I'm raising up the Babylonians, that that feared and dreaded superpower of the day, and they'll deal with the problem. And so Habakkuk cried out again, but Lord, why do you do it like that? And the Lord's reply in chapter 2 is that Habakkuk needs to see the bigger picture. 
Because ultimately, judgment is coming on the Babylonians too. Hence these five woes that we read on Babylon in chapter 2, of which our verses are the third one. And in them we see that there's an overriding goal that's at play. A goal that has certain necessary implications. You see, it's all about the goal. And so let's look together at these verses under three headings. Considering what God's goal is and what the implications are for humanity. So firstly, let's consider the goal of creation. The goal of creation. Look look at verse 14. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This is one of those verses that's sometimes called a Manhattan of Scripture. You know, Manhattan with all of its skyscrapers. This verse is a soaring skyscraper of Scripture because it promises such an extraordinary thing. It promises filling the earth with the knowledge of God's glory. And that word glory, it means heavy. It's the idea of weightiness, of of significance, of worthiness. We often talk about things being glorious, don't we? We might speak of a, of a glorious sunset, perhaps not on an evening like tonight. But its glory is something that's intrinsic to it. It is part of its essence. And as it's made visible, it's something to be celebrated and to be praised. You look at the sunset in all of its glory, and it takes your breath away. Well, it's similar with God's glory. God's glory is what one writer's called the infinite beauty and greatness of God in all of his manifold perfections. That's something that takes your breath away. And here in our verse in Habakkuk chapter 2, we're promised that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of that glory. It's so comprehensive that that it's like the waters covering the sea. Where don't the waters cover the sea? This is a remarkable promise. It's nothing new. Because filling the earth with the knowledge of God's glory, making God's sheer weightiness, worthiness and splendor known, that's really the goal of creation. This is a golden thread that runs right through Scripture, right from beginning to end. And I want to show you how that's so for a moment, by, by taking you on a bit of a whistle-stop tour through Scripture. So hard hats on for a moment. And and think of creation. There God made man and woman. He blessed them and he said, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. God's goal was to be accomplished through human means. Through his image bearers who were to fill the earth. On Thursday evening, Her Majesty the Queen was involved in lighting a beacon at Windsor Castle. It was part of celebrating her, her glistening, record-breaking rain. And so she lit this, this, this powerful, shining light. But it was only one beacon, shining in, frankly, a small corner of her kingdom. On its own, it, it hardly seems fitting, which is why some three and a half thousand beacons right across the Commonwealth were lit to celebrate Her Majesty right across every corner of her kingdom. We have something similar here at creation. Adam and Eve as God's image bearers, they were beacons in the garden, but it was but a small corner of the earth. 
And so it was never the, simply the human goal to, to remain in Eden. Rather, they were to expand the boundaries of the garden. They were to populate the whole earth with image-bearing beacons. So that God's glory was made known, as it were, on every corner of the globe. But with the fall came devastation. The image was marred. The wattage dimmed, as it were. Though the heavens declare the glory of God, men and women ever since are blinded to it. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Indeed, things got so dark by the flood that we're told that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. You might think it's time for the goal of creation to go out of the window. Time for plan B. Start over again, but perhaps without any human instrumentality. But no, God remained resolutely committed to this goal, that the earth would be filled with the knowledge of his glory. And through human means. And that's why he established Israel as God's people, as a new Adam. With the tabernacle and the temple, the place of God's presence. God's glory in the midst of God's people. With Israel itself as, as a light to the nations. Not just content with its small part of the earth, but reaching out. Filling the earth with God's glory. But like a bad song on endless repeat. Israel failed again and again and again, just like Adam in the garden. And yet still God's resolute commitment did not wane. Rather, it's seen, isn't it, supremely with the coming of Christ. As John says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. So that now when someone's converted, we say with the Apostle Paul, the God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory, displayed in the face of Christ. So that every time someone's brought into the kingdom of God, the earth's being filled a little further with the knowledge of God's glory. Indeed, isn't the church described as being the temple of the living God? God's presence is among his people and the mission of that people, the mission of the church, is to make Christ known. God's glory fills the earth through the, through the worldwide spread of the gospel. And why? Where's this all heading? Well, it's heading to the new creation. When Jesus returns, we won't be ephemeral beings floating up in the clouds somewhere, but physical beings in the new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells, where the knowledge of God's glory will be fully and finally known. That's why, as, as James read at the start in Revelation 21, the Spirit shows John the holy city, Jerusalem, a picture of that new heavens and earth. And John says it shone with the glory of God. And its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. A glory of dazzling brilliance radiating through the whole earth. The goal of creation accomplished at last. A former Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher once said of herself, the lady's not for turning. Whatever you think of her politics, you know what she meant. There was this single-minded determination to chart the course she'd chosen. And yet doesn't Mrs. Thatcher pale into nothing compared with this? 
As we see this golden thread of scripture, do you see just how resolutely committed God is to this goal of creation? That brings us then to our second point, which is this, the necessity of judgment. The necessity of judgment. Because the resoluteness of God's goal brings the necessity of God's judgment. Remember, it's all about the goal. Hence the promise in verse 14 is given as the reason for the judgment of verses 12 to 13. That's why verse 14 starts with the word for. Because. Verses 12 and 13, they proclaim woe on the city builders. It's decrying the Babylonians as as they pursue empire expansion. As they build their cities and and establish their towns. But the problem isn't that they're, they're city building in and of itself. City building is part of the the cultural mandate, rightly pursued. It's a means through which God's glory can spread through the earth. The problem is not city building. Rather, it's how they do it. So verse 12, they build with bloodshed and injustice. Their means are wicked. Their intentions are anti-God. Really, they're pursuing their own glory rather than God's glory. They're going totally against the grain of God's creational goal. Against the purpose for which they were created. It's just like at the Tower of Babel. Remember how the people said to themselves, Come, let us build for ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise we'll be scattered over the face of the whole earth. You see, they wanted to make a name for themselves rather than for God's glory to be known. They wanted to avoid spreading through the whole earth rather than filling it. And is it not so often the case that the kingdoms of this world operate in this Babylonian type way, pursuing their own glory rather than God's glory? It seems almost inappropriate to say that at the end of a a Platinum Jubilee weekend as we celebrate the long prosperous reign of of a monarch who professes to love the Lord Jesus, for which we thank God. But when we read this woe on the Babylonians here in Habakkuk, we aren't just reading a fact of history. Because throughout the Bible, Babylon is a byword for evil. And frankly, it doesn't take an observational genius to work out that the leaders of this world are so often power-hungry tyrants. As a child, there was this game we used to play at birthday parties A rather monstrous game, it has to be said. We'd be sat in this circle, and one by one, we'd throw a die. If you rolled a six, then you'd have to grab this hat, scarf, and gloves and put them on. And then you'd proceed to eat a bar of chocolates. With a knife and fork, of course. The health benefits really don't bear thinking about. And we certainly didn't think about them back then. Because instead, you'd be grasping for the chocolate as quickly as you could, stuffing your face by hook or by crook. Because you knew that as soon as the next six was rolled, it was game over. The hat, scarf and gloves would be snatched from you and the chocolate would be gone. The kingdoms of this world are a bit like that. They grasp all they like. They stuff as much chocolate down their throats as it were. They break as many rules as they like. They bulldoze the people aside in the process. They know that their time is short. They want to grasp as much power and fame as they can whilst they can get it. 
And that's what we so visibly and painfully see with Vladimir Putin right now. And yet these verses tell us that whatever gain they grab is ultimately in vain. And that's what this magnificent promise in verse 14 tells us. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. You see, the point is this. This promise can only be accomplished when judgment comes on the wicked. The wicked, as it were, are a barrier preventing the accomplishment of this promise. It's like in World War II. How could there be peace in the world? Well, only when the wicked Nazis and their allies were defeated. The goal of peace necessitated the defeat of the wicked. And so here. How will God's glory ultimately fill the earth? Only when the wicked are defeated. Which means then that God's unstoppable purposes ensure Babylon's certain destruction. That's at the heart of this woe. All efforts to stop God filling the earth with the knowledge of his glory are futile and in vain. Hence verse 13, the enemy's labor is but fuel for the fire. They exhaust themselves for nothing. Despite their best efforts to the contrary. God's necessary judgment is coming upon them. And if judgment comes on these Babylonians as they pursue their own glory, well, how much more so on that great last day when the Lord Jesus returns in all of his glory and the pursuit of God's goal to fill the earth with the knowledge of his glory demands the necessity of such judgment on all who reject God. Indeed, Revelation 18 declares that a day is coming when an angel will cry out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She will be burned up with fire. For mighty is the Lord God who judged her. You, know, you might not be a world leader trying to grasp world power this evening. But do you realize that this same principle is true for anyone doing this on a smaller scale in their lives? Perhaps you're trying to, to, to build your own empire at work. Perhaps pushing others out of the way, whatever the cost. And climbing the greasy ladder to, to make a name for yourself. Can you see how foolish and how futile that is? Because ultimately all that's not been in pursuit of God's glory is but fuel for the fire. Waiting to be burned up. Because the Lord reigns. And the Lord will win. It's all about the goal. And so judgment must come. But that brings us then thirdly and finally to consider the life of faith. The life of faith. You see, verse 14 truly is a Manhattan of scripture. But doesn't it soar even more highly in the context of these verses? Judah, God's kingdom was collapsing. And as Babylon rampaged and, and swept across the known world, how must it have looked? Surely it must have looked as though the very opposite of verse 14 was happening. That rather than God's glory filling the earth, the wicked Babylonians are, fulfill, are filling it. Or so it seemed. Now, only with the eyes of faith can the truth of verse 14 be seen. 
which is what chapter 2, verse 4, which is something of the key verse in the whole book, calls for. Our NIV says that the righteous person will live by his faithfulness, which is an unfortunate translation. Much better is what you have in the footnote there, or what the ESV translates it as. The righteous shall live by his faith. We haven't got time to drill down into that this evening, but you don't have to take my word for it. Because just like a good maths textbook, you'll find the answers in the back. And you'll find this particular verse quoted in several places in the New Testament, including Romans 1, Hebrews 10. And they say this very thing, the righteous shall live by faith. The point is that the one who's declared righteous in God's law court, having entrusted themselves to the Lord Jesus, continues steadfastly entrusting themselves to him day by day. And that means then clinging to verse 14's promise. Clinging to the certainty of this promise being accomplished. Because with the eyes of faith, amidst the darkest days, this promise shines ever more brightly. Remember, it's all about the goal. And so as we draw towards a close, I want to spell out two implications for us as we live the life of faith. Firstly, don't fret. Don't fret when the wicked prosper. There's so much that might discourage or dismay us as we look at the world around us today. Putin and and his utterly detestable wickedness. The persecution of God's people in in China or, or North Korea or Nigeria or our list could go on and on and on. Even in our own nation, as we see so-called progress being made, such as proposed on conversion therapy, these things that take an anti-God, immoral direction, this trajectory sort of, it looks like an unstoppable runaway train. Well, in a sense, things are really not so different from Habakkuk's day. How perplexed he was by what was happening and by God's providence in it all. He went from crying out, Lord, why don't you do something, to, to Lord, why do you do it like that? And in the face of such horrors, it's tempting to give up or to despair. And to lose sight of God's perfect providence in all things. And to, to doubt that God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. But this promise shows us that the wicked are on the wrong side of history. They're on a collision course with with God's unstoppable purposes. God will accomplish his goal. Christ's return will see the final defeat of Satan and all his allies. Babylon, as a watchword for evil, will be defeated. The church militant will at last become the church triumphant. And so rather than fretting, we need the perspective of Asaph in Psalm 73. Do you remember that psalm? How he says, My feet had almost slipped, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. What made the difference? Asaph says, When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. It's the same kind of perspective that Habakkuk comes around to by the end of chapter 3. In chapter 3, verse 17, as he waits for the Babylonians to devour Judah, he says, Though the fig tree does not bud, 
and there are no grapes on the vines. Though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the sheepfold and no cattle in the stalls. It sounds pretty bad, right? Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. Or as the Apostle Paul puts it in Romans 5, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That day is coming. That glorious day as we sung when, as the bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face, we will not gaze at glory, but on our King of grace, not at the crown he gives us, but on his nail-pierced hand. The Lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. And so don't fret. Don't fret when the wicked prosper. Because the darker the days, the more brightly this promise shines. And that leads us then to our second and, and final implication for the life of faith. <laughs> don't fret, but instead, pursue the goal. Pursue the goal. Pursue God's goal of filling the earth with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. In a sense, that should be obvious. Just think who you are. You once were in darkness. A slave to sin, living for your own selfish ambitions. Deserving of God's judgment, as we've been speaking of this evening. That God shone the light of his glory into your hearts so that you are no longer a slave to sin, but, but a slave to God. And since God is so resolutely committed to that goal, won't you be as his servant too? Really, we're back to Steve Jobs and his employees, aren't we? Any other goal is futile and it's to be thrown aside. We need this promise etched on our hearts because it's all about the goal. As John Piper famously put it, mission exists because worship doesn't. And so pursue that mission. Strive to see God's glory fill the earth through the, through the worldwide spread of the gospel. And that means then rejecting all attempts to pursue our own glory. It means not putting your hope in the kingdoms of this world. We can all say yes and amen to that, no doubt. But so easily we can be blown off course. So easily we can be diverted from the goal. Isn't it so easy to pursue the goal of ease and comfort? Isn't it so easy to pursue the goal of fame and reputation? Isn't it so easy to pursue the goal of, of middle class utopia? You know, idyllic home in a comfy setting, the perfect family life. Don't get me wrong, some of those things can be good things, but they're not ultimate things. They're not the goal. You were bought at a price, so therefore glorify God. Pursue the goal with all your might. In places God has put you, live for his glory and his glory alone. Make Christ known to the lost, those under his judgment. Pray and pray and pray as you let your light shine brightly in a dark world. Because it's all about the goal. The day is coming. The day is coming when the kingdoms of this world become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ. And he will reign forever and ever. 
That day when the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And so knowing that that day is coming, don't fret, but pursue the goal. Walk by faith and not by sight, so that through us, glory might be brought to his infinitely glorious name. Let's pray together. We praise you, almighty God, for this most wonderful promise that we find in Habakkuk, that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. We praise you that you have not treated us as our sins deserve, but that you have sent your Son, the Lord Jesus, that your glory has been made manifest in our world. We praise you that you have shone the light of this glory into our hearts, that you have opened our eyes to see. And we praise you for the certainty that one day we will be with him forever on that great and glorious final day. And so we pray that you would help us to live with the end goal in view. You would help us to pursue the goal and not fret. And we know we can only do this with the help of your Holy Spirit. And so we pray that he would be at work in our hearts. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.